everyone, and welcome to The Shelf Warmers, the podcast about toys and how they impact our lives. I'm your host, Darby Harn, and with me, as always, is my good friend, Sugu. How are we doing, Sugu? I'm doing all right. The weather's warming up, although today was a bit chilly. How about you? How are you doing? Same here. Uh, weather's better. Still chilly because Iowa. Um, I'm uh, now vaccinated, um, so that's Yay. good. It's very positive. Yay. Yay, my arm hurts. Um <laughs> The, uh, the, so that's good. I'm glad for that. So hopefully folks out there listening, um, hopefully that's become more readily available to you. It seems like it's improving here in the States anyways. Um, but today we wanted to follow up on our episode on Lord of the Rings. So uh, two episodes back, we talked about Lord of the Rings toys, and then we started talking about Tolkien. We started talking about the book and revisiting um, the book and the movies, the music, and how that's um, the sort of in the context of 2020, we received wonderful feedback on the episode as it relates to living through the pandemic. And so today, <clears throat> excuse me, today's episode will be talking, we'll be expanding, expounding on that theme, discussing other works we're reconnecting with and, and how it all relates to our moment. So maybe a good place to start to is just kind of um, if you, you would receive this feedback yourself on the episode, so maybe you could kind of give an idea of what that was. Yeah. Um, like, uh, I've got, uh, I've got some listeners out here that uh, are in my world who, uh, uh, they'll send me different feedback at different times. Um, uh, this one person said that the Lord of the Rings episode was fantastic and, uh, they had a, a quite a lot of feedback. So, even though we have a uh, schedule of stuff that we'd like to talk about, um, we've got several toys to talk about, uh, even for my own collection. Um, you know, you and I were talking about it and thought it might be better just to, to reorder our schedule and to um, uh, just kind of go back, revisit the Lord of the Rings based on this feedback. Um, so one of the things that they mentioned was uh, about the the U catastrophe, which you brought up, and I didn't even know, so I had to look that up after the episode as well. Mm. Um, uh, and then um, uh, our our listeners said that they would like us to to expand on how mediums like comics that are perceived for children. Um, are quite normal for adults to to enjoy um, uh, through like a societal lens specifically. And then uh, the next thing is um, he that that person oh, edit that to be they. So uh, uh, the other thing they they wanted to say was um, uh, they really liked the idea of of what we were talking about, about people liking to, or wanting to be entertained uh, and not think too deep. And they wanted stories mm-hmm. to have a happy bow around it. Um, so in full disclosure, this per, uh, feedback, this listener, both of us uh, work in schools, in different school settings. So mm-hmm. um, one of the things that we've talked about before, uh, my friend and I, is this idea of a growth mindset and a fixed mindset. And 
Um, the reason we often talk about it is in the education system or the educational constructs, which is like uh, a fixed mindset is usually really difficult to teach people with. Um, people who have a fixed mindset, uh, it, it basically means that education comes from uh, from one source. It is verified by the hand of God type stuff. Um, and it's very hard to, to develop, to be honest. Um, whereas a growth mindset tends to look at, um, whatever happens in a situation, what is the learning point from that? What can I learn from it and how can I grow? Now, I'm sure uh, the teachers in our audience are all going to have some quibble over my, my description of it. Um, but I just want to give kind of a, a quick synopsis of growth mindset and fixed mindset, especially as it relate, relates to students. Um, so that was another feedback that that person gave. Um, and then tying it with the, uh, with the pandemic that we've all been dealing with for the past right. uh, year or over a year now um, and how Frodo took Frodo and Sam took one year to go from the Shire all the way to Mount Doom and to mm -hmm. to destroy this great evil that was looming over them so that's kind of it, the feedback that we got yeah so there's there's a few different things in there um, and they're all things that, you know, we could um, probably could string out. I, you know, I think talking about the comics and entertainment is something I think is worth exploring, especially as um, we talk about reconnecting with um you know, stories, which is how we came to Lord of the Rings, to talking about Lord of the Rings. It was this sort of, um, we sort of had done it independently of each other. We both had kind of gone back to the movies and the book and find yourself sort of just going, going back to it and reconnecting. And I found myself personally uh, going back to, to stories from my youth, comic books, movies books in general and i just sort of uh, without any real plan or projects trying to reconnect uh to those things i think part of it is age i, I think I, there's a as an artist i'm i'm a writer um you know I, i'm an author of novels and um i think there's an engine in artists and 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 writers that propels you pretty hard and pretty far and i think the older you get i think maybe the engine doesn't slow down, but I think it becomes somewhat distant from the fuel source. And I think part of what I've done in the last year is try to remember the things that I'm writing about, why I'm really writing about them. I think you get to a certain distance and you, you sort of maybe forget um, the, the intricacies or the, the, the primal power, uh, the interest of, of what you're writing about it becomes just sort of like memory. It becomes just uh, something that exists, right? You don't really spend a lot of time thinking about it. Um, and then, and so in that way, as much as I've been gone back to Lord of the Rings, I've gone back to, to comic books and in particular, 
certainly the X-Men, but, uh, but Excalibur, um, I thought I'd maybe mention briefly. Uh, I don't know if you're familiar with this one, Sugu, but Excalibur is sort of the British offshoot of the X-Men. Right. Um, I got a copy here of uh, Excalibur 23. Um, I picked this up the other day. I've gone back and I'm sort of uh, getting uh, the back issues uh, from the original run. And uh, Excalibur is one of the series that in uh, that made the I was closely connected to when I was so this came out in 1988. I would have been 13 or 14, and I just remember standing there at the stand, um, reading about it and um, uh, reading about it, reading it, and um, uh, it always made a huge impression on me. And a lot of the ideas, the concepts. Um, entered into my imagination and into my subconscious and manifested later in ways that people, if you, if anybody out there is, is interested in my writing or has read my writing in particular, ever the hero book about superheroes, you probably recognize uh, some of the characters. Um, there's a lot of Rachel Summers and Kit Baldwin. Um, you won't recognize the tone that didn't rub off on me. There's a very zany British humor in Excalibur that I never sort of digested, but um, I, I think I, I, I think as we've all been trying to get through this year and we've been trying to find ways of coping and dealing with the stress and uncertainty, I think we've probably all found different ways um, to do that and certainly through reading and trying to reconnect and, and, and maybe in some way too, trying to find um, something that makes sense. You know, Lord of the Rings is just, is a is a story of people trying to make sense in some way of something that's completely, you know, a world that's in disorder and distress. Uh, Excalibur, in its own way, is as well. It's uh, the the I won't get into the complicated mythology of the X Men, but Excalibur comes about because the X Men are believed to be dead, and the only survivors are Kitty Pride, Rachel Summers, and uh, Kurt Wagner, uh, Nightcrawler. And they end up reforming in Britain with Captain Britain and Megan. Um, and they're trying to make sense of something that's truly horrific and, and nonsensical. And then they get bound up in this story, which is truly gonzo for comic books, for Marvel comics anyway. Um, well, for me, I, I have a slightly different take on that. It's, but sure. I, it also strangely coincidental, right? Like I've been... So I've been re-watching Lord of the Rings uh, for a couple of different reasons. One of the reasons that I was watching it is, um, uh, you know, we've talked before about writing and how you and I met through a writing program and yeah. how I've been uh, an aspiring writer as well. Uh, but, you know, the past through the pandemic and maybe a few years even before, I've hit this major block of I don't really know what I want to write about anymore. Um, I don't really know what story I want to tell. I don't really, I don't really know. So um, I wanted to revisit, revisit a, um, a story or a narrative that was one, timeless, and two, just uh, almost perfectly told like in terms of pacing, in terms of themes, in terms of um, character development. I kind of wanted to revisit that to try and 
give me like a jump start. Um, now I have not been rereading Excalibur, but in addition to the book that I've been, uh, in addition to the book that I'm reading, um, I'm also reading uh, or revisiting this comic book that I never actually got a chance to read back in the day. So I'm kind of going through it, reading it now. And you're going to love this one. It's the sensational She-Hulk from the early 90s. So this is the John Byrne She-Hulk. Yeah. Uh, this is uh, fantastic. Yeah. Very meta. Um, I think it predates Deadpool in terms of oh, it does. breaking and everything like that. He, uh, she is um, the John Byrne She-Hulk run. This is amazing. Um, uh, this is also a book that I, I've been looking at lately a little bit more, but for different reasons um, is outstanding. Um, Howard the Duck, truly the first sort of fourth wall breaking character in Marvel comics, but She-Hulk took it to a level that Deadpool then uh, yeah. became associated with, but he, she preceded Deadpool and that concept that she, the fourth wall, breaking concept that she did precedes him by solid decade or more yeah and you know i i just kind of picked it up on a lark um i wasn't really planning anything i was just kind of like yeah. someone told me that this was worth checking out i'm like okay i'll so i'll check yeah. it out and it's some of the things that i've noticed in there now this i've had to go back and look at copyright for for these comics as i've been reading them multiple times because it is weird how the stuff that she says and the stuff that happens are it's the same thing that's happening now 20 30 years later it's like we haven't grown we haven't learned anything in the past awesome. 30 years and it's crazy to um to see that or it's crazy to read that because like you know it's one thing to read to read a period piece or to watch a period piece that looks back uh you know and it knows that it's making a dated reference right like a classic sure. example is the wedding singer back when we were in college it oh, knows God. it was making a movie in that took place in the 80s but it was made much later right right or uh, coming back to Transformers, Bumblebee, which was so obviously an 80s movie because it just screamed 80s. Sure. Or Wonder Woman 1984, which screamed hyper-aware 80s. Mm -hmm. But the thing is, the sensational She-Hulk was actually written uh, 1989 to 94, it looks like. Yeah. Um, and so it wasn't aware, it wasn't self-aware of the time period that it's written in it just was it's a good way of describing it yeah and um, it doesn't read dated it i mean some out some elements of it absolutely mm. read read very dated but at the same time some of the bigger themes of it some of the things that was happening in it it's it's kind of depressing that we haven't learned a damn thing. So maybe expound on that. Like, what do you feel like we haven't learned from? Is there a connection there to maybe Lord of the Rings or just stuff we've been talking about? Or Yeah, I wish, uh, to be honest, I wish I had prepared a bit more for, the, for this. I did not think I was going to talk about Sensational She-Hulk. Preparation is everything. <laughs> um, but it's just like, uh, you know, the, the sexism that's that, back in the day 
was quite, I don't want to say common, but accepted. Yes, and, very accepted. And it's still there now, right? Like nothing's changed. And Sensational She-Hulk actually brought that up, right? It brought it to the forefront. This um, is, if I could interject real yeah, quickly, yeah, just, just to say um, the sexuality in She-Hulk and the, the, the observation of it is one of the most misunderstood things about this particular book. One of the most famous uh, issues in this run and one of the most famous comic books, Marvel comic books in the last 40 years is She-Hulk 40. And why is this famous? It's, I think it's I famous. Know exactly where you're yeah. going with this. It's famous because this is the issue where Jennifer jump ropes naked. Yep. And there's two things going, there's a lot of things going on, but there's two major things going on. One is Jennifer is gorgeous and she's never ever looked better than when John Byrne drew her. And, and John Byrne was in love with, with Jennifer. And, and that that's cool because he, he no, I, nobody drew her better. But she's not actually naked. As you find out in the scene, as she finishes jumping rope, she's actually wearing clothes. And the whole issue, the whole scene is commentary on the male gaze. And this is sort of coming from John in 19, this might've been 1990, 1991, um, which is fascinating context of, of John Byrne's career because he made a career out of drawing beautiful women very beautiful he drew every chance he could in the x-men when he was on the x-men he drew storm naked right she wasn't really naked because something was it was was you know disguising but he did and he liked it and so did everybody else right so there's that but then he's aware of it he's conscious of it and he uses she hulk to to do this and that now cut to 30 years maybe 30 plus years later the male gaze is still a problem Sugu and I have been talking we won't get super into this today but just as a way of reference I'll refer you guys to a series of videos by YouTuber Maggie Mayfish uh, that goes into this uh, dives into Zack Snyder's filmography we avoided talking about it on our Snyder Cut episode his filmography in general but one of the criticisms she has is the way that he objectifies women in the Snyder films, and he does so in scenes in which that wasn't the case, in particular, uh, Silk Spectre and Watchmen, and the infamous scene in which she's attacked by the comedian in The Watchmen. That scene in the comic book in no way sexualizes uh, Silk Spectre, and in the movie it does, which completely upends that scene. Right. Um, and completely John defeats the purpose. Defeats the purpose, and John Byrne in the scene, that, the issue that we're talking about, I think is 30 years ago, uh, a commentary on that behavior of yeah. comic book artists and then filmmakers and, and it also reminds me uh i think this is something that you and i talked about after the podcast last week maybe but um you know there's a lot of when when trump was president there was a lot of articles that i saw that was talking about how oh this media from the past was predicting the future about different aspects of it um, one of the things that they talked about was Bullworth. I remember reading this sure. article about the movie Bullworth and how it predicted the future about a celebrity president and stuff like that. Mm -hmm. uh, and not, uh, I, don't, I don't remember all the details of what it predicted, but it said it was like it was a predictor of the future. And I, I rewatched Bullworth um, and I watched uh, the other movie, Primary Colors, uh, not too long ago, just to kind of see what how it predicted the future and you know i gotta say my opinion of it wasn't that it predicted the future it's that we didn't fix anything 
we're in the same right. place that we were back then when those movies were relevant. Right. Which there's a couple things there. One, you know, one is is that you know we are on a continuum. The continuum is mostly because things are never resolved, which is the long defeat that we were talking about right. in the episode regarding Tolkien. It's just to revisit that real quick is the long defeat is Tolkien's concept of, of basically why history is. It's this Catholic idea that's what he espoused primarily through letters to his uh, friends and colleagues of the cyclical nature of history you know you 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 it, this is in lord of the rings the first alliance defeats sauron but the ring survives and then eventually falls into the hands of Gollum. the whole cycle repeats why why does why is any of this happen what didn't we do this already there's a lot of sort of frustration and, and anxiety in the world today because 80 years ago um you know, America and the Allies defeated fascism and Nazism. Well, those forces are at play today. And in fact, they always have been, and they were before World War II. These are the same ideas that they 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 rise up, they coalesce, they're defeated, they disperse, they coalesce again. And it's this constant battle against forces of entropy, against forces of hate and violence. Um, an, apoc an apocalyptic thinking that um, that breeds fascism and things like that and all the things we've been fighting since the very beginning of time, you know, society versus anarchy, things like that. Um, and that's a large way what Lord of the Rings is about. And, um, and in the world today, it's why this cyclical thing, we look at things like we look back to the nineties and we see the, you know, the anticipatory stories and Bulworth, the uh, primary colors or um, other things like that in the Simpsons, the Simpsons predict, predicted Trump would be president as the Simpsons predicts all things. Um, Magic eight ball, apparently. Um, you know, the thing about Trump being president and how everyone predicted it, I mean, I'm sorry to interrupt you and go off nope. on this tangent, but. Trump was always mentioned in this media as president, not as a predictor, but as a joke. That was the punchline. Right. And people back in 2006, I mean, there are hundreds of reasons why people voted for Trump, but I talked to people who, <laughs> before talking to me, they thought Trump as president would be funny. It would be a joke. And I remember that was why people said they voted for, um, uh, I want to say Bush the Younger as well. Like, he was just funny. I'm like, that's not, you remember the, the thing, like, oh, I could have a beer with him. That's not who you want as president, right? You don't want I, to share a beer with your president. You don't want a, a comedian <laughs> for a president. I, I will say that I, I've shared a beer with Joe Biden in the sense that I was in the same pub with him in 2007 at Jameson's. Uh, Jameson's uh, in Ireland? No, in, uh, in Waterloo. Uh, so Iowa, I'm from Iowa. I live in Iowa. Iowa's famously uh, first stop for uh, candidates of any of any stripe, any political persuasion. So your opportunity to meet them is pretty great. And so I, in general, I, I, I meet more or less all of them as they come through Waterloo and Joe Biden was running in uh, 2007 and he became uh, friends with uh, the owner of Jameson's uh, pub in, in my hometown. 
um, to this day, they're friends. And uh, it happened to be in Jameson's one night as, as the president was there. So um, I, Joe Biden's a very friendly guy. I don't think there's any mystery about that. But, um, but to your point, uh, no, the object of a president, I don't think, is to have a beer with him. It, it's you want a person who uh, you want the best, the brightest, the the you know the person who's going to handle the superhuman moments. I don't necessarily need to relate to him, you know. Um, I, but you, you want to be able, you want to be able to identify with whoever you're investing your vote in. But I don't, I don't need to feel like that. He's on my level. I don't want somebody on my level. I want the next level up, you know, just to sit in that seat. I know what my faults are when it comes to international relations with domestic issues. I know what my faults are. I don't want that. Yeah, no, 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 no. There's a reason (laughs) not running for president. So, um, no, yeah, to your point. Um, But... It's, it's interesting as, as you kind of think about that, you know, this, this idea of sort of, you know, the cyclical nature of all these things and a lot of the frustration that I felt and I know others have felt as I've had conversations with people about, you know, like, why are we still dealing with these things? Like, you know, I, this came up all the time. Didn't we, haven't we moved past racism and haven't we moved past nationalism? Haven't we moved past fascism? In some sense we have, you have this incremental progress right from the way things were things are progressively better but those those forces that are behind those things racism sexism fascism nationalism they never go away they just retreat maybe from the stage for a moment or decades or and for people in daily life never because it's a daily battle that they that they live with but collectively nationally globally maybe we feel like these things sort of and they feel like they're in the rear view, but they never are. And that was one of Tolkien's thesis in Lord of the Rings, which was that this is a cyclical thing. And he had plans at one point because the success of Lord of the Rings was so great that the publisher obviously wanted a sequel. And he he had ideas. He wrote maybe, it seems like a hundred pages of what would have been the reemergence of Sauron in a later age. Um, and then he ultimately abandoned that because he did, he thought he had said everything he needed to say. Um, you know, it, it, I, I think he thought it was understood in Lord of the Rings that this was cyclical and that even though that was the end of the story, it wasn't the end of the story that it, there would be some evil would return. It would remanifest in some way. Mm-hmm. And he didn't feel like he needed to write another epic to communicate that same idea. Um, I mean, but, it does, it does re- come to that point where, uh where you do start to wonder like if it is so cyclical then why bother yeah. <laughs> then why bother so it's why bother so this is and so tolkien's thought on that and we can let's talk about that a little bit um people were you know that was the question posed to him um why bother with this at all then if history if history is just a series of of defeats um what what's the point of of any of it 
um, and Tolkien, Tolkien's perspective was basically that progress was attained through these defeats, that, that the long march of human history writ large was the advancement of, you know, humanity towards a, to sort of a, a, a Catholic sort of idea, sort of a, you know, in, in his view, a resurrection as and as he said in his letters you know he is a roman catholic and he he never expected this is i'm going to quote him directly here i do not expect history he puts history in quotation marks to be anything but a long defeat though it contains some samples or glimpses of final victory and the final victory for him was a was a christian was a catholic victory which is the which is the the resurrection but i think Outside of that, if you don't subscribe to that worldview, it, I think what his concept of long defeat still holds value and that it's recognizing that it's, it's not that our, our effort, it's not that the effort of all the, the men and women who fought and died in World War II was somehow undone or wasted because they didn't defeat nationalism or fascism outright. It's that their fight is our fight. And that it, this is the fight that's gone on and, and, and it's incumbent upon us to take it up. It isn't to be like, you know, it, it, it's not to think that anything was wasted or, or was undone or was somehow diminished. That, that's not it. It's that the, this is the fight. And, and, and the, the victory is fighting. And the victory is never, ever yielding to entropy. It's never, ever yielding to these forces. It's just picking up the fight, knowing that the fight is always going to go on because we have this inherent dichotomy within us as human beings which is that we're we're creatures of nature and though though there are natural you know nature is in contrast a little bit with our the human concept of society um and so we're always fighting that within ourselves and we, we always will be and it's awful. Even as we evolve greatly, we've evolved greatly from our origins and we're evolving into something else uh, as we go forward into time. And just as we are very different from the people who left Africa a couple million years ago, the people who leave Earth a couple million years from now will be unrecognizable to us. And the, but they'll be fighting the same fight. They'll be fighting the same forces within themselves and within their nature. And I think there's a comfort, at least for me, I don't know maybe how you feel about it. There's a comfort in knowing that it's, um, we're part of the same fight. It's not that someone didn't do enough or did something wrong or their effort was somehow diminished. It, it's that we're all part of the same fight and we have to, we just have to keep doing it. We have to take it up. Well, so my, my take on it is quite simply, it's why I'm, in education now, right? Mm -hmm. It's like the only way to combat this on the long term is through education. Mm -hmm. you, you can't pass policies, you can't just magically fix things, especially you know, in a year's time or something like that. You've got to show people a better way. You've got to teach people. Um, and you know, teaching people can come in a variety of ways. I just chose education as the most direct way to that. Um, you know, and I can, I can tell you, you know, uh, for 
long-term listeners already know, but I, I live in Japan right now as a, uh, and I work in schools and I used to teach, but um, most of the, the international staff or most of the international people that I've seen working in schools here tend to be white. So for my students having me as a non-white native English teacher, uh, that is a point where I can take the time to educate them. You know, I, I asked them, or I used to ask them, uh, how many countries speak English as a native language, as a first language? And I kind of enjoy pointing out that India is one of those countries because they, they almost never think of it. They always think America, Canada, Britain, Australia. Uh, but I like to point out India as well. You know, India's got a thousand languages on their own, but right. you know, they, uh, Indian English is a recognized native English. Um, it, is a, it is a variant, right? It has its own um, rules, uh, internal rules and internal uh, syntax. Same um, as in Ireland, by the way. Right. So, you know, this comes to, to this whole thing, like coming back to the to the the eternal fight. Right. I like to look at Star Trek as mm. what we could do if we all got on the same page and and we all started working towards that. Right. I read a book a while back. Um, oh, actually called Humble Pie by Matt Parker. Um, mm -hmm. He's a mathematician. Uh, and he was talking about how, you know, in one person's lifetime, our natural instinct towards an understanding of math is very simple. We have the internal mechanisms to understand calculus. Like if I throw a ball at you, I know what arc or what parabola to make to mm -hmm. have it land in your arm, right? That's an, an instinctual knowledge. But through millennia, through generations of learning mathematics, we're able to actually break through our evolution, through our natural understanding and actually expend it further, mm -hmm. right? As a society. And I, kind of, and I tend to think about education like that, right? Like education is the path to break through our natural instinct and to develop a society together. Um, and that, you know, coming to this idea of uh, the growth mindset or the fixed mindset, right? Mm -hmm. The fixed mindset doesn't believe that. The fixed mindset means like um, who you're born with, that's who you die as. Like right. it does not change, right? But the growth mindset is you have the ability to learn more. You have the ability to, to take your potential and develop it in amazing ways mm -hmm. things that you would you would necessarily expect and i have seen that with countless numbers of students now that being able to guide them and push them into growing beyond what they expect and you know i feel that it that I feel that like that's the best way that I could try and help 
in this fight against a global slide back to authoritarianism and fascism that's been happening the past couple of years. Yeah, it's discouraging. It's despairing. It, it's, you know, there's a lot of fear and anxiety bound up in the way that the world seems to be reverting back to a conversation we had 100 years ago and that we thought we were done with. Um, but we're never done with it. And, you know, education is a major, if not the major factor and the kind of progress we're talking about because we're um, human beings are, are products of ignorance. We come out of, we've come out of, um, we don't know as we come into the world, we don't know anything, you know, we have sort of instincts and natural behaviors that drive us, but we don't know anything about the world. And we've gone from, um, you know, we, we share origins with primates. And so we've evolved from, um, animals that have, um, very little, it seems, understanding of the world beyond their immediate scope to um, the other day we sent a probe to Mars that then flew a helicopter around Mars. Um, and we have, a, we have a, a working understanding in the universe that is um, terrific in every sense of the word. Um, well, a couple of years ago, we got a, a picture of a black hole. Yeah, we have, we, we know things about our universe and, and how we came, you were talking about math and, you know, we're human beings are also product of math in the sense that, um, that um, the universe seems to be organized um, through math and human beings are products of that as well, ultimately. Um, so we're, we're on the precipice of, of something truly wonderful in terms of our development and education is big. The more we know about our universe, the more we know about ourselves, the more we know about, you know, who we are and who we can be. And it's that we have to keep fighting for that. And, and the forces that work today in the world that have always been at work, which have been anti-education, anti-progress, they, they, they want to, you know, whether it's burning books or trying to keep certain, texts out of schools or, or trying to legislate away, um, uh, defund colleges, defund schools. It's always about trying to hold people hostage to their ignorance because that's true power. That's true power in, in the world. The knowledge is power, as they say, but in, and when you have knowledge and you, you keep it from someone else, um, that's, that's, that's a true, uh, measure of power. So, and you see that in Lord of the Rings, you know, um, the the ring is the ultimate power in the world of, of Middle Earth, but it's it's also this pathway to knowledge. And you know, who holds the knowledge is, you know, it's a big part of that story. But it's, I, I agree with you a thousand percent. It's about education. That's a great thing that you do. That you know, you you made education your career in your life. Um, and everyone should aspire to that. And what and whatever they do, you don't have to be a teacher. You don't have to be involved in education to value education or promote education. But if you embrace it and if you open yourself up to it, and and part of that is doing it through art. I think you know, if you're a person who's interested in, in reading or any of the arts, um, you find yourself opening up to different worlds and different perspectives, and and that's how you grow as a person. Is you, you know you step outside yourself a little bit, you know, you realize the world isn't just you, what you can see or hear or smell. So 
And that's critical, especially today as you know, we become very myopic in some ways. Yeah, I mean, you know, with the internet, it's so easy to fall into your own echo chamber. I mean, that's been yeah. uh, articulated several times over. But the, the other danger with that is kind of the opposite. Instead of uh, falling into your own echo chamber, you just disassociate yourself from everything and say, well, I think both sides of every issue has value. And so I'm just going to stay in the middle of the road for every position and I'm never going to take a side. And I don't think that's true either. <laughs> like, I, There's something I mean, to be said for, uh, you know, appreciating the nuances of, of different arguments than your own. But yeah, middle of the roadism, not a long-term <laughs> philosophy to hold. And, yeah. and, you know, that goes along with the other point uh, in the feedback is this middle of the roadism that's, that's coming up, right? Is is this idea really fundamentally what it is, is people don't want to think. They don't oh. want to know the nuances of their, of their, of their own positions or of the other positions. They don't want to, to be confronted with, uh, with some sort of challenging thought, right? It, like for me, I'll say this, I'm liberal, quite liberal, quite progressive. Um, and it's uncomfortable for me personally to entertain a conservative thought point of view, um, because I don't, I don't subscribe to a worldview like that. Um, you know, uh, one generality of a conservative viewpoint is it's embroiled in fear. I don't want to live in a world where fear is my main motivation, but that's my personal thing that doesn't mean that that doesn't mean i have to shut down every debate with a conservative it just means that i have to take more of an effort to understand that that is the core viewpoint and then from there it branches out into different views right and this isn't just political leanings. this is whenever you talk with anybody yeah, I mean, part of part of valuing education and valuing knowledge is 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 valuing those other perspectives, and and so when you're confronted with something you don't agree with, whether whatever, if it's a political philosophy or just um, any idea that's uncomfortable, um, you know, growing old, for example, um, you you sort of have to still, you know, I don't know if entertain it is the right word, but you know, you have to sort of uh, acknowledge it um you know and try to understand where it comes from if you can one thing in our politics in the world really not just here in the states but that we sort of suffer from at the moment is an inability to acknowledge the other side and part of that's because they've atrophied to a point where um that they're not really political politics is it, politics is 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 an art it's it's an exchange it's a debate and then it, it's well you have this idea i have that we disagree but i i'll give you this for that that's politics. What we're right. talking about today in the world, what's happening today in the world isn't politics. Um, it's, it's a political philosophy that has become um, rigid. And so you, you have, in, in the States, you have a, a, a contest between something that 
a political ideology which is very much rooted and committed to the past and where we've been and you have one that's committed to the future and where we're going a very little to no debate there there's no contest of ideas there's no dialogue there's no exchange and and that leads to ugly places as we've seen on january 6th it leads to violence um but it doesn't have to be like that. And, and it, you know, politics, whatever you're, wherever you are, whatever your policy, the, the divide is in your politics, it doesn't have to be that. It, it can still be a debate of ideas and the exchange of ideas, so long as there are ideas, right? It, it doesn't matter which side of the fence you're on. If you have ideas and you say, I believe this, or I think that, and where, how, where are we going? How can we get there? That, you need that, you know, you, you need the engine and your and your politics of that. Um, so, you know, acknowledging the other side isn't so much any kind of issue, really. I, I don't think as it is just, um, you know, getting back to just the, the mechanics of politics. You know, now, that, that depends, like in, in Lord of the Rings, for instance, the, there's no real debate there either, right? It's that, you know, Sauron's like, well, I would like to rule and then destroy the world, <laughs> right? right? And Gandalf's like, I, I no, I can't disagree have, with I disagree. Decision. Well, now I'm we got to fight to stuff. What's yeah. to say from Pirates of the Caribbean? I'm inclined to disagree with your request. Yeah. You know, so there's, there's, that's not a political thing. It's a Sauron isn't seeking a political uh, ambition. He just wants to, so that's, that's different. But, um, and so, and sometimes that happens, sometimes it happens and that that's the cruelty of, of life and history and humanity is that sometimes um, we can't settle things and they end and they, they blow up in these eruptions of, of violence. And, um, you know, the only way to solve something is, is through that way, but that's not the only way, uh, yeah, it, in the it, sense that, you know, it, it doesn't always have to be like that. You know, that's one of the other things I really liked about this recent rewatching of Lord of the Rings is that um, <laughs> and it's so hard to only talk about Lord of the Rings and not bring up the recent Snyder version of Justice League <laughs> as a oh, compare and contrast. That's fine. But um, like one of the things that's amazing to see in Lord of the Rings is the solution is not always to punch your way out of it. Sometimes right. it, it is to run. Sometimes it's to escape. Sometimes it's to uh, cloak yourself. Sometimes it's to uh, take a different route. Sometimes it's like to find allies, right? Like there are several different ways that our protagonists are handling the problems that they're facing. And we've really started to glorify only punching your way through um through your problems and you know in, on, in a related note one of the things that i absolutely loved about lord of the rings is how many times especially towards the end even frodo is just saying i can't do this it's mm -hmm. too much for me like it, it's too much i can't do it i'm going to fail yeah and he, he ultimately pays a steep price for it um and the Lord of the Rings for all the action sort of adventure that's in that is ultimately a story about resolving things um, through a different way. Because at the Council of Alrond, the, there's a lot of different um, potential avenues to 
taking on this fight that are presented. And the most obvious is, well, let's just use the ring ourselves. Well, why not? It's a, per, it's a logical thought, right? I mean, we've got it. Why, why wouldn't you use it against this great threat? You have this terrific threat that is um, out there and you know, you have, you have the power that they seek. You have, you have an advantage over them right there in the moment. They're not wrong. When Boromir says let's we have the, the advantage. Ring. Yeah. Let's use the ring. Um, he's not wrong. Um, but that's not the answer because that will only lead to even greater violence and just in destruction. And the only way to get rid of it is to destroy it, which is to acknowledge the reality that you're choosing the hardest path, the most difficult path. And it's going to, it's not easy. It's not simple. It's not clean. And it's, it's going to take great sacrifice. And that's what Frodo does. Frodo says, I will take it to the mountain. I don't think Frodo properly understands what that entails when he agrees to it right <laughs> but you know he didn't understand the full length of it but he also knew that he was the only one who could he was the only one who could you know and aragorn tells him in the movie this isn't quite in the book but aragorn tells him i, I would have gone with you to the end um that's probably not true aragorn probably would have succumbed to the ring as boromir did but um but as Frodo did, you know, Frodo did uh, succumb in the end, but, but it's, and it's through the other thing we talked about in our previous episode about Lord of the Rings, it's through the U catastrophe, which is this unexpected positive event that the whole thing is resolved. But it, that event, just to go back to that real quick, is that, but Gollum's accidental fall into the volcano and then the destruction of the ring, Gollum's presence there is linked back to a previous moment of, uh, uh, in the Hobbit, uh, on the part of Bilbo, where um, that encounter, that sort of charity, or, or even as they're playing the game of the riddles, um, you know, uh, it goes all the way back to that. And, and Gollum's presence then is is ultimately, even for his suffering, for his evil intent, for his inhumanity, is ultimately a positive thing. And, so, you know, that's mm -hmm. why I love that scene in the movie where uh, Gandalf says it was pity that stayed Bilbo, Bilbo's hand. Exactly. Like, such a powerful moment if you really unpack it, right? Like that idea, many who live deserve death, many who die deserve more life. Yeah. Are you going to be the judge? Can you decide? Um you know, like that's such a powerful, understated moment. If Bilbo does not take pity on Gollum, Gollum is not there on Mount Doom. Frodo succumbs to the ring and Sauron gets his hands on Frodo and then the ring and then Middle Earth is destroyed. Right. And, um, you know, it's that. Uh, that's why, you know, even when someone says, and this comes up in a lot of, fiction that we're absorbing these days whether it's the Zack Snyder's Justice League or even Falcon and Winter Soldier which we'll talk about we, we're, we're going to talk about it as when the series is over um you know we'll kind of do a deep dive into it but it's even you know do the ends justify the means you know shouldn't you just a threat exists just take out the threat and so in Falcon and the Winter Soldier you have John Walker I just need to get rid of the terrorists Sam Wilson's like no we need to talk to them it's the same thing with Bilbo and Gollum and in Zack Snyder, and we did an episode last week about Zack Snyder and his perspective on Superman. And, and Superman, for all of his strength and power and everything, is the person that it, it would actually be talking to you. 
and would actually be trying to defuse the situation. Because if Superman were somehow existed in Middle Earth, he his thing wouldn't be to, well, I'm just going to fly over uh, fly over to Mordor and I'm going to go to that tower. I'm just going to knock it down. Where are you at, Sauron? He actually, he wouldn't do that. He'd be like, well, what do we need to do to talk get get out of this like i'll i'll end up punching you if i have to but we're not we're not going to start there and it's so it's 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 that sort of it's that exploring other ways expanding your possibilities your your mind your knowledge all that stuff but isn't isn't that the crux of it like isn't that the the point of most of these narratives that you know give someone an extra ability but you know, a large part of giving that extra ability is knowing when not to use it, knowing how not to use it or overuse it. For example, oh. Spider-Man always pulls his punches. We find out later because he's so strong that he has to consciously pull his punches so he doesn't murder every single person he deals with. Um, and then yeah. the same thing too with the Flash. He has to actually slow himself down so that he doesn't like burn through everything. <laughs> Um, isn't that the point because you know in traditional martial arts you see this as well but you learn how to fight so that you don't fight so i i agree but it's not just when not to use it with great power comes great responsibility it's it's how to use it so i'll just as a frame of reference um because these ideas are are my thoughts on it are bound up in in my writing just to go back real quick to, to give you folks an idea. So I, I, I'm writing a series of books that are deal with superheroes in general, quote unquote, um, ever the hero, the hero of, of ever the hero is Kit Baldwin. Um, and, and she's the protagonist. She's a woman of uh, truly amazing cosmic power. Um, and she could, if she existed in Middle Earth, she would have very little problem with the ring. Actually, that actually, those would be two bad things to combine those for her to put on the ring. It'd be very bad for everybody, but forgetting that, forgetting the nerdery of all that. um, Kids project in the, in the books that are out there, there are two books out there right now. The third book's coming a little bit later this year, but as the, as the story develops, just to give my philosophy on this is kit kit has power to, to create and destroy and she can impose her will in any way that she wanted. But her project is 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 how to use her power. It's not to, as she says, it's, I, it doesn't. I'm not going to put on a costume and go out and punch criminals at night. I'm going to get rid of the forces that create those criminals, the economic disparity, the cultural and societal things. I'm going to apply my power in ways that you know. If she wanted to end, you know, something, she could end it, like through force. But that's not what I want for her. And I, and that's what I, as we've been talking about, that's, I, I don't think that's necessarily the way her way is I'm going to use my intellect. I'm going to use my power. I'm going to use my potential to truly change the world. So not only do I get rid of crime, you know, crime and injustice and all those things, I get rid of myself. I invalidate, I invalidate the need for me, the hero, right? Um, we talked about a little bit this uh, about this on I think on our episode where we talked about the superheroes as strongmen and the, this um, the 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 play about Galileo from Bertolt Brecht that uh, you know sorry is the world that needs heroes. Um, it's that idea, and I, I think it's it's so it's not just 
just to bring it back to what you're saying, it's not just, you know, great power, great responsibility. It's how you use it. And, you know, it's in, in the case of Lord of the Rings, it was the, the ring was the symbol of power, truly terrific power. You know, it had to be destroyed in Middle Earth. It couldn't exist. It was corruptive. It was, you know, even the best of people, Frodo, it, it, it just, it had to be gone. But could there have been some way of, you know, confronting that power, exploring that power in a way that wasn't evil? I don't know. I don't think that was Tolkien's thought. I just thought, you know, I think Tolkien's idea was that this was this, it was a symbol of just evil. So it had to be destroyed, right? Yeah. And, and that was very much what 1950s thinking, right? Like good exists, you- bad exists, bad must be destroyed. Like true. true. It. This yeah. postmodern thinking, you know, like in 2021, bad will always exist. Evil will always exist. So the the goal is not to eliminate it, but the goal is to manage it. The goal is to um, minimize the devastation. Right. And yeah. then then you have the question, why bother? If it's always going to exist, why bother? Well, because as as was said in uh, in in the Lord of the Rings, because you simply just can't have a world like that, right? You like, can't, like you can't just give up because that's one that's not an option. But you, you just simply can't live in that world. No, and it's we we all you know it's. As Gandalf said, one of Gandalf's most famous quotes is, you know, all we have to decide is what to do that with the time that is given to us. And and that's and that's all that comes out that that quote comes out of this conversation that is this despair over why me? Why this fight? Why 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 anything? Why is this happening? And that's a question we all ask ourselves at some point. You know, why why are why is the pandemic happening? Why is this political upheaval happening? You know, why, why is, why, why is there unchecked rampant gun violence in the United States? Why, why are we, why, why are we allowing our children to be butchered in their schools? I don't know. I I don't know why it's happening. I don't know why any of this is happening. It's not for me to know. All, all that there is for me is, is to commit to the fight and, and to try to do the best with my time that, you know, that I can and, that are, you know, if we can convince others to help us out, that's great. Yeah. Um, you know. You know, because one of the things, too, that I, you know, I've been thinking about is one single person out of 7 billion can't do a whole lot. You know, one average person like me, like, who am I? I, I can't do anything on my own. So I need a a team. I need a team of people who uh, share similar similar ideas about progress, about what to do with our time here. Mm-hmm. You know, and that comes in the form of my students. Is mm-hmm. that I can't do anything on my own, but if I can uh, empower the students, if I can get them to take their their mission you know, their own personal mission, guide it in a progressive way, and then they can impact the world, right? Like, that's a multiplier effect. Yeah. That's a 
that's a much bigger push. Exactly. And and I was going to say one other thing too that I really like about Lord of the Rings and I don't see this often and and this could very well be the media that I consume. I'm not sure. But Frodo even at the very end always maintained that he is just an average person. That why me is throughout the entire yeah. the entire trilogy he was never the chosen one he was just meant to have it right like he was just meant to because bilbo uh got the ring right like that's all that that is but he wasn't chosen he wasn't destined he wasn't a strong man he he didn't have any super ability to do it he was just completely average theoretically and right. I don't see a lot of media these days that talks about the strength of the completely average person, that empowers a completely average person to well, be motivated to do something. Yeah, I know it's not to my own horn, but just to go back to Kit, uh, Kit, uh, there's a lot of, shockingly, people will be shocked at this, there's a, a lot of Tolkien in, in my writing, he's an influence on me, obviously, and there's a lot of Tolkien in ever the hero kit is a average person in every way um who inherits this powerful object and then all the power associated with it and she's constantly questioning um why her and she she will throughout because it's it's she's put in increasingly uh difficult positions that depend largely on her and then in this in the I don't want to give away the store, but the the you catastrophe of ever the hero happens at the very beginning of the book. It 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 when Kit Kit finds this object called the Myriad, which is an an, an alien object, a, an object of alien power, and she bonds with it. She fuses with it. I'll spare everybody the details, but the question is why? How did this happen? Why did this happen? This has never happened before. Why you? Um, that's the you catastrophe of, of ever the hero. There is no answer. It just happened. Um, it's a happy accident um, that um, leads to what it leads to eventually in the story. Um, and so as opposed to, you know, in Lord of the Rings where it happens at the end. Um, but it's, it's that sort of, the, there are, I think there are, you know, the, there seems to be a lack of, to your point though, in popular media, there seems to be a lack of the average person. There seems to be a lack of the everyman these days. It part of that is is our culture. We 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 have a disease in American culture. I'll speak to that um, that celebrates celebrity um, and that thinks that celebrity is something that that's a, a something to be attained. And so you have celebrity that. exceptionalism, and I would even argue hyper individualism. Sure. Yeah. You, you know, sort of have, you know, the idea of you existing now as the brand um, that that's a product of a lot of different things. It's a, it's a product of social media and a lot of other things, but it's um, it's sort of about vaulting the self and the idea that being common or being when I grew up to get to really, you know, I, I think a big, I don't want to get too deep into this, but a, a big, see change in politics in my in my lifetime was when i was a kid you know i i i'm a working class person I, I come from working class background um 
it, it was celebrated the idea that you were nobody. Well, I, I would hear that all the time. I'm nobody. I'm just a guy, regular Joe. That was sort of the ethos. And you could argue with, of course, nobody is nobody, but it's that it, I'm just, I'm just a guy. Today it's I'm somebody. And you say, of course, we're all individuals and we all have, we need to value our individuality. But that is, but the dark side of that is flipped over into this political clashes that we see today. I am somebody, you're nobody, right? Now, no, but now being nobody is the bad thing. And people in politics who are pushing down on nobodies, people who are economically disparaged, culturally disparaged, they're passing all these laws that are in, in states here in America that are taking away medical treatment from trans kids. They're attacking people, regular people, people just trying to live their lives. And the, the people, and then there's this cult of celebrity, there's this cult of somebody, this cult of the hyper-individual, as you said, in our politics, it's an absolute disease. And it's, it's, you know, it, it's corruptive. And this, you know, the idea that, you know, aspects of our politics are about the working class person is an absolute utter lie. When every political action that that particular thought, school of thought takes is against the working person. I'll leave it there. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, you're, you're absolutely right. Like if you look at, if you look past the rhetoric and you look at what's actually being done, um, I mean, I'm thinking right now about the Georgia voter suppression laws that have been yes. passed and how they're all like, no, no, it's not voter suppression. We just want to make sure the elections are fair. They were fair. Or as the uh, courts have decided it was fair. Uh, not to interrupt you, but as a, there was a editorial in the New Republic last week about shouldn't less people vote and better people vote, literally the tagline. <laughs> Which, I mean, that is an argument. <laughs> well, I, I, I'll just say um, thanks for raising your hands out there, fascists. It's good to know who you are. <laughs> Stand up and be counted, dude. I mean, to me, that it, from an education standpoint, yeah, we do want better people to vote, but we want to make everyone better through education, right? Like, it's not, sure. it's right. not about one group of people that are somehow magically better than everyone else. It's about taking everybody, the population as a whole, and making them all better, right? It's not about limiting voter, it's about expanding it and then making the, the arguments make sense. Yeah, because, and the reason that these fascistic ideas manifest is because the educated voter is someone who's probably not gonna vote <laughs> for the ideals of someone who doesn't value education, right? right. So that, that, that's history, that's not just American history, that's just, the minute you let people, and this is why the, the introduction of the popular vote into politics is a relatively recent thing in, in world history, the minute you introduce people into it, you've lost control. You know, people in power influence, you know, whether whether that used to be high society or royalty or in, in our case, um, these these political uh, I don't even know if you can call them parties anymore, these political entities which are about maintaining power no matter what. And that's you know 
to be completely blunt about it, keeping people poor, sick, and stupid. And that's the way that you, that's the way that you maintain power. So as you say, you know, you're all about education. The more you, uh, people become illuminated to the facts, to all the different arguments and the different ways of looking at it. Critical it, thinking. It, critical Being thinking. To, to parse out such a, an argument. Such a weird concept. It, the, the, the more they tend to vote for things that benefit them and don't benefit the people that are trying to uh, control everything. You know, you don't want to vote against healthcare, your healthcare. You don't want to vote against your own education or, or anything that's going to diminish you as a person or diminish others because you, as you become more educated and a critical thinker, you tend to consider other people. Oh my God, what, you know, what a, you know, revolutionary idea. I mean, anyway. it's, it's amazing that like even now in 2021, we have all of this technology around us. We have all of these different ways to both tell and receive narratives and stories, mm. but still the best way on a, uh, on a neuropsychological, on a, uh, on a neurological basis, still the best best way to develop empathy is by reading stories of other yeah. people's perspectives yeah reading in general but certainly certainly other perspectives i you know to open your mind to in your heart really to everything that you can you know i i'll spare everybody sort of the debate about the literary merits of this or that but to read everything it's not just books read comics read magazines read poems read read everything you can you get yourself inside somebody else's head inside their humanity it's really not that different at all from yours um what makes us unique is our own individual experiences but we share mostly experience our experiences are mostly the same um and you know we live we die we marry we have children sometimes um we lose um, we struggle. So there's a lot to recognize in other people if you want to recognize it. And we should, because if you're not going to recognize other people, you're not recognizing yourself. And if you're not going to do that, as, as you said a couple of times, why bother? I mean, that's, that's why I, you know, for me personally, I want to get back into writing. I just don't know what to write about. And yeah. I really want to spend a lot a lot more of my time absorbing other people's stories right like i'm mm -hmm. i'm reading um a lot more narratives from different perspectives nowadays like i'm actively seeking those out to to cover some blind spots that i might have or to expose i should say to expose those blind spots and then try to to, to close up those gaps um yeah, I always encourage people, I, I hear that, um, I always encourage people just to write. I think the surest way to, to, to write is just to do it. Um, it's going to suck. You're going to hate it. Um, that's okay. That doesn't matter. You're going to revise it. So, but writing and that, that opens other doors in you too, that opens in your mind and, and everything like that. And that might lead you to other you know, that might lead you to other places, but um, I believe this is the first time I'm going to swear on this podcast. But the oh. shitty first draft, the shitty first draft, sort of a term that goes back to sort of a college. Was that Anne Lamont who coined it? Yeah, that was Annie Lamont's, uh, Annie Lamont. 
Bird by Bird, a remarkable book. If, if anyone out there is interested in writing, creative writing, um, that's a book that I, I would consider probably essential. Um, yeah. There's a lot of books, but that, that, that's certainly one. That, that's one that we encountered in college and the long, long ago. But um, there are many other books as well. And it, that's another thing, too. If you're interested in writing, uh, find a, a, a class, find a course, and, and it's probably online at the moment, but that would be okay, too um a, a, a writing class is a good way to just get you to write you know to motivate you to write there's often uh we would do i don't know there was always some sort of uh thing you got and it's like okay here go write about this um and then it, it's a lot of reading it's a lot of exposure just to writing into literature that you probably would not have found otherwise yeah uh for me that's kind of my the tactic that I'm decided on on uh, settling on is just reading a lot of different perspectives, and uh, I don't know. Maybe a story will or a narrative will come up. Maybe I'll get an idea as I'm as I'm reading. But mm-hmm. I really want to spend some time amplifying those voices, amplifying those those stories. Yeah, absolutely. That's that's another thing too that um, that we all should be doing is amplifying other voices and 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 trying not to impose our as we're doing it, trying not to impose our voice on that. Just being there and and supporting that and um, and listening. It's the most important thing I always say as a, as writing, but also in life. It's all about listening. I'm a big believer in hearing other people and and not just the way that they talk is as a writer i'm fascinated by the way that people talk the way that they sound but what are they saying so you got to be listening to all of it so maybe and as we what are they not to, saying too what are they not saying the What's, gaps the, the, yeah, the what is the motivation behind what they said like well, why yeah. what what brought them to 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 say that you know even goes for for us you know why are we talking about all of this, the, today's Indeed. podcast, the past <laughs> however many weeks, why, are, why of all the topics are you and I, why did we choose to talk about all of this right now? You know, like, yeah, what, what about it? It's important. What about it is important? I hope people find value in it. it. It seems like, you know, this today's episode was motivated by some really positive feedback we got. And, and we really appreciate that because one, people are listening and, and two, um, it's resonating, you know, with people on some level. So at least some of what we're talking about. So we want to talk a little bit more about it. I, I think we're thinking about it. We've gone back to Tolkien. We've gone back to the work. As I've said on today's episode, uh, these ideas are bound up in things that I'm writing about. So I, I'm always thinking about them um, and on some level. And I'm trying to work. I work out a lot of my thoughts and feelings and frustrations through through writing. Um, and trying to figure that out and people can determine for themselves whether or not that has any value but um, that's that's for me that's part of my process is doing that and so like you're you know you were saying you know you're you're sort of digesting you're sort of taking other voices and 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 right now and sort of maybe cocooning and I where I just I did I just sort of goes right into the machine and it just processes I sort of process by writing and that, but that takes a long time to manifest. I, you know, Ever the Hero is a book that began in 2011, came out in 2020. So, um, 
so it's it's just different ways of getting there, I suppose. But as we uh, maybe as we wrap up today, that some people can think about at home. We'll look forward to Sugu's uh, story, his writing eventually at some point, and and we'll look forward to more feedback. I, if people have uh, any feedback at all, uh, if you are tired of us dunking on the Snyder Cut, let us know. We'll, we'll take it. Won't stop for a while though. <laughs> I, I have a feeling it'll probably come up some more in the future, but. Um, so maybe we'll leave it there for today. We had a really good conversation today about all that. I hope, I hope people find something, uh, like I said, a value in this or something they'd recognize, or if they don't, maybe they'll go to some of these works that we've talked about, you know, even, even Annie Lamont or, um, other things that we've talked about. Uh, Sugu, I don't know if you or I talked about this offline or during the podcast. There's a book you're reading right now that you, that maybe has some value to what we're talking about. Um, yeah, I, I can certainly talk about it. I'm, I'm reading this book called How to Be Anti-Racist by Ibram X. Kendi. Mm-hmm. Um, and it's it's really fascinating that, uh, just, to, to, just to read it, to be honest. Um, you know, I've always been against racism and all that in kind of like a general way, right? Like, oh, racism is bad and stuff like that. But in the past four years, especially, I've really tried to be a lot more specific about what I can do specifically to mm-hmm. try and help turn the tide against the uh, increasing racism, uh, especially in America, but you know, in my sphere, right? Um, and this book is really good about bringing up um, a, a lot of really interesting perspectives that I hadn't considered, um, and including the history uh, of racism, where where it started. Because amazingly, there actually is a definite start date. You know, racism is not a fixed part of human existence. Um, it has a historical starting date. Um, and then kind of how it developed over 400 years into this, dare I say, quite a pristine system. Um, and one of its goals is to make sure that people don't notice it. Yeah, it's, I mean, it's something to consider as we talk about the long defeat and how these fights seem to go on and on and on. Um, so yeah, maybe if people are interested check out that some of the other stuff we're talking about um we mentioned maggie may fish uh youtuber give search her out if you're interested in a lot of different things but sort of certainly film criticism but also i'd say cultural criticism um in her and she's fantastic she's a great youtuber in the vein of uh lindsay ellis and and some other folks like that um deep analytical type stuff and funny and the great thing about these youtubers that um is that that the the ones that sort of Maggie or Lindsay or there's another one Curio I uh, just discovered related or even few we've talked about you a few times relative to the Transformers they're fun right yeah. so it's not it's, you're, you're not sort of uh, drinking the bitter pill of um, philosophy it's or philosophy too which is another one we enjoy um, they're fun and they have personalities um, so yeah. that's really good one thing I would say to kind of add on to that because this actually happened to me today as I was watching uh, Maggie Mayfish um there there's another video that was recommended to me because i watched maggie mayfish and it was kind of a 
I don't want to say rebuttal or a response to because it, it, it wasn't. It was meant to be another take on the same issue. Mm-hmm. Um, and so I clicked on it thinking that it would be a good recommendation, right? Like it was based off of the fact that I watched this, this video. And it was fine at first, but then it started to, um, it started to point out the ways that Maggie Mayfish is wrong, which is fine, you know, fair criticism. But it was also clear that he wasn't actually listening to her point, that he was just saying that it's wrong and that he used other examples to try and prove it, but his examples didn't actually disprove the original point. It didn't actually counteract it. Counteract it. That, that never happens. Yeah. So I would say like, you know, with the YouTube videos, anyone can make a YouTube video. Anyone can make a YouTube channel. And back in 2015, I want to say, um, a lot of people got, got their got their fame and fortune by making reaction videos to Anita Sarkeesian with the whole Gamergate thing and people were were making a lot of reaction videos to that so it's really easy now to delve down a rabbit hole where you have uh one good video of solid criticism and I don't mean critical but criticism critiquing but then like 20 videos will be recommended that are all the opposite. And that's designed to basically have you sip their Kool-Aid. Yeah. The, the perils of the algorithm, um, the, one of the reasons our political culture is the way that it is, is because I, I, you know, in social media, things like that, that sort of, you know, I get, I get recommended. Well, may, we'll maybe take this up at a, in a different podcast. It's sort of a larger conversation, but I get recommended videos on YouTube all the time from people that uh, I have no interest <laughs> in hearing from. Um, for some reason, Ben Shapiro is someone that YouTube thinks I'd really need to hear from. I think it's safe to say that I have not a lot of interest in Mr. Shapiro or his point of view, but yet somehow they think that given the the things that i watch um which have nothing to do with that type of thing but it's curious and so i see that on twitter as well i i i'll I'll get that you know uh you know i guess it's sort of you know you go you search tweets sort of trending and then all of a sudden you get all this weird stuff and and so i i find it weird that's a whole other subject though we'll we'll leave that for another time maybe but um yeah maybe we'll kind of leave it there for today um and people if they're interested they can check out the the works that we've talked about if you're interested in my work at all um you can find me and my books at darbyharn.com or on twitter at darbyharn um uh, my latest novel a country for eternal light just went up for pre-order yesterday you can find information about that on the website and already ordered it <laughs> yes thank you Sugar. um i sold a copy um so uh in sugu uh people can find sugu uh through me at the moment um, yep, generally through you or if you know me personally through those channels that you already know yeah so um 
so yeah, we'll leave it there today. Good conversation today. And then um, we got some good ones coming up. We will talk about Falcon Winter Soldier, uh, I think, when the show ends. And and then uh, we'll be talking. We got some other stuff, uh, some other toy-related stuff that we're going to get into. So Motormaster. Motormaster. So we'll leave it there. Uh, so everybody, uh, stay safe. Be good. Uh, wash your hands. Wear a mask. Yeah, and give us feedback. We do appreciate the feedback, and we definitely... Um, take it into consideration so keep that up absolutely we absolutely appreciate it all right cheers take care bye-bye